is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And now it's time for a brief look into the history of air conditioning. Here's Jesse. One of the single greatest inventions in modern history is the air conditioner. Americans spend more than $22 billion a year on electricity to cool their homes with air conditioning, an average of $2,200 per household. It's hard to imagine how people lived without it. Ancient Egyptians cooled themselves at night by sleeping in wet sheets. Early Americans placed large blocks of ice in front of fans. Willis Carrier invented modern air conditioning in 1902 for a publishing company in New York that was experiencing problems when humidity caused ink to smudge and paper to expand. The New York Stock Exchange building in New York City was one of the first buildings to use air conditioning in 1903. But it wasn't until 1904 when the first private home was equipped with an air conditioner in Minneapolis. Movie theaters were among the first businesses to install air conditioning. In 1922, Carrier installed his system in a movie theater, which advertised its new system by saying that the theaters were, quote, cool as a mountaintop. Yes, you lucky people, just sit back for a moment, relax, and notice the delightfully clean, cool, and refreshing atmosphere of this scientifically air-conditioned theater. Great, isn't it? Remember, you can enjoy great motion picture entertainment all summer long in cool comfort at this theater. In 1939... Packard became the first automobile manufacturer to offer air conditioning in its cars. But it would be decades before AC became commonplace in homes across the country. Here's historian Gary Mormino. Air conditioning had, had existed in, a, in, in the larger cities since the 1920s. Uh, you could go to the premier movie theater and enjoy air-conditioned comfort. But it was unaffordable and really unrealistic for a homeowner to even dream about air conditioning. The carrier window unit came in 1951. And uh, what's interesting is it wasn't an immediate hit. For instance, uh, everyone I think assumes that everyone went out and bought a window unit in, in the summer of 1951. It was much slower than that. First of all, it was very expensive. Most homes were, were, were modestly priced. It made no sense to purchase a thousand dollar unit for a $6,000 house. Uh, the, the first census to ask home old owners whether they had air conditioning was 1960. And in 1960, only one home in five was air conditioned. But, but the future was lock set. Uh, almost all the new developments included air conditioning and, and uh, central air conditioning. Climate control was the future for growth. Uh, this, the, we, we live in air-conditioned cocoons from homes to cars to movie theaters to schools to workplaces. Uh, air conditioning uh, is omnipresent now. In Hollywood, Florida, a neighbor's newly installed air conditioner rattled all night and his neighbor took him to court and the judge ruled you might as well get used to it. This is kind of like the Model T. It's, it's the wave of the future. And it's one of those new sounds introduced after World War II, you know, the war of the, uh, of the air conditioner. Air conditioning has also created a 12-month tourist industry. 
before air conditioning, many beach communities open only a few months a year. The grand hotels in the 1930s, the Royal Palm, the Breakers, the Don Cesar, they generally only operated in the winter months for three or four months. Uh, close for the season would be the sign in, uh, in, in summer. This hot summer has got me down You can fry an egg on the street Heat waves are wiggling on the sidewalk Cops are dropping like flies on the beat I need a new loafer to take me in Protect me from this humid air Be from Brooklyn, Staten Island or Queens I don't care It don't matter what kind of loving you're into Or how big your apartment might be All you need's an air conditioner And you're the man for me Without air conditioning, we wouldn't have certain medications today. Some medications could only be studied and developed in a cool environment. Kids can thank air conditioning for summer vacation. Before air conditioners, it was too hot to learn during the summer. So the kids were granted a break, and the idea stayed. This lucky baby will sleep quietly through the night. Yes, no matter how high the temperature goes outdoors, this baby's RCA air conditioner will keep his room filled with cool, dry, fresh air, and keep that room so comfortable and quiet, he'll never need a middle-of-the-night lullaby. Yes, quiet is the word for this new 1954 RCA air conditioner, as the wonderful Heart of Cold compressor silently cools the air for you. Without air conditioning, life would be a lot harder. Not only would we be uncomfortable, we'd be fighting for our very survival. According to a recent study, Heat-related deaths have declined 80% since 1960. This can be directly attributed to widespread adoption of residential air conditioning. Harry. Ah. Uh, you sleep. Who can sleep in this heat? Think you could open the window a little wider? So we can let some more hot air in? When you're trying to beat the heat, we think you'd have better luck with the Kelvinator Speedy Mount air conditioner on your side. Even the cold water's hot. According to the National Academy of Engineering, air conditioning and refrigeration is the 10th most important achievement of the 20th century. If you're sitting in an air-conditioned room or car right now, take the time to appreciate everything AC has given us. Comfort, productivity, health, cities, and much more. Air conditioning makes us more productive and allows us to live longer, happier, cleaner, and more comfortable lives. And don't risk a breakdown during the hottest days of the year. Keep your artificial oasis going by remembering to schedule a professional AC maintenance every spring and calling a professional technician as soon as you notice a problem. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. You're as cold as ice. And great job as always to Jesse. And you know, you just forget. There was a time, 1903, the first building to use AC, the New York Stock Exchange, the first car, the Packard, in 1939. And in 1960, only one in five homes had AC. Hard to imagine. The story of air conditioning. The history of air conditioning here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories. And up next, our story of a song. And this is one of our favorite recurring segments. And we do every kind of American music in this particular subject. We've done Light My Fire with Ray Manzarek, Jesus Take the Wheel, as good a country song as you can write or sing, Give Me Shelter, how that song got made in a studio in Los Angeles, one of the Stones' great songs, and the story of George On My Mind and how that got to Ray Charles and what Ray Charles did with it. And up next is Greg Hengler with another great installment of our story of a song series. Chris Tomlin is a prolific American Christian songwriter with two certified platinum albums. Because of his song's popularity in many contemporary churches, Time Magazine said he may be the most often sung artist anywhere. Although the song God of the City would become the anthem for Louis Giglio's Passion Conference and receive international exposure while peaking at number 72 on the Billboard's album chart, this story of a song neither begins with Tomlin nor was it written by him. The song God of the City originates in 2006. Belfast, Ireland-based modern worship band Blue Tree took part in a short-term mission trip to Pattaya, Thailand. It was the first time the band had been out on a trip like this. Here's what Blue Tree lead singer Aaron Boyd had to say about the trip. Pattaya is a small coastal town in Thailand, which has been built up around the sex industry. There are 30,000 female prostitutes over the age of 18, and that doesn't include those who fall under this age, including both sexes. It's physically dark. It's spiritually dark. And when I drove in and saw what was going on, I couldn't see God there at all. I was frightened. I mean, not just a little bit, but a whole lot. I blame our mission pastor. He had done such a great job on us warning us about the dangers that we were up against in one of the world's most infamous destinations for sex tourists. So we were doing the usual mission stuff, sweeping streets, playing in prisons, and a school. We asked if there was any chance we could get another gig somewhere, anything. It didn't matter. So we ended up playing in a bar on Walking Street in the Red Light District, which is a quarter of a mile long street in the middle of Pattaya, where it's the hub of all prostitution and the craziness. The bar called the Climax Bar was a brothel. It was just a horrendous place. The deal was we could play there for two hours if we brought 30 friends with us who would all buy Coca-Cola because Coke is more expensive than alcohol there and the bar would make a little more cash. After two hours, we'd played every worship song that we knew, but it wasn't time to finish. Something was up. Here's band member Pete Kernigan. And I can remember looking out over my left shoulder and, and seeing just, I don't know whether or not it was British tourists or whatever, but I can remember just looking out. And here they are in the middle of the street and they're just hearing these Jesus songs blasting out. And uh, there's just a pile of them just standing outside the door. And they were just looking. And I, I would love to know what's going on in their heads. You know, just wondering what the heck are these guys singing Jesus songs for in the middle of this street? And I just began to sing out what I believed God was saying over that city. I just began to say that, you know, since God is God of this city, he's the king of these people, he's the Lord of this nation. And they don't know that. They don't know that. And uh, and the song was born. The song moved from, it came out of this, just this loop that started to play, a real minor downbeat loop. 
and uh, and it just majored up into this like anthem of the night that just said greater things have yet to come and greater things have still to be done in this city. Really, probably the biggest moment in my life that changed my life was the moment that that God of the City was actually written. That point when that song was formulated. What is the church on a global scale doing to actually combat things which exist in our planet that are completely wrong? Whether it's child soldiers, prostitution in your own city, homeless in your own city, anything what's going on, what is the church doing? We should be the pioneers. We need to understand that we have an authority, that we have an authority that comes from Christ, the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in every single one of us. And that we actually need to have an attitude of going out and serving the world with just with love, you know, and actually living out the Great Commission. Here's Chris Tomlin with the rest of the story. The story behind this song is amazing. Um, we were in Belfast, Ireland, Northern Ireland, and doing a, uh, just doing a worship, worship night there, and there were several bands that were opening up for us during the, during the night. We were the, we were the last band to play, and there were several bands during the, during the day we were going to play, and I was in the uh, dressing room, probably just looking over the set list, getting ready to, uh, thinking about our songs and how we were going to, how it was going to lead tonight, and I remember Daniel, this was, there was this band playing on stage called Blue Tree, and they were a local band from Belfast, and I remember Daniel running in the uh, dressing room, and he said, Chris, man, did you just hear that? Did you, are you, were, out, were you out there? Did you hear that song they just played? And I was like, no, he said, gosh, you've got to hear this song. Some way you've got to hear this song. I really think you'd love it. It's, it's really fresh. And he said something about God and the city. And, and, and I was like, okay, okay, man. And so I, after the concert, after we played, I got, I got with the guys from Blue Tree and said, I'd love to hear this song. And, they, and, and so they showed me a demo of the song. And I was blown away the first time I heard these words. For greater things have yet to come and greater things are still to be done in the city. Just how fresh it was and the melody and it was just perfect. And I started thinking about what we were about to do with Passion, this movement I've been a part of. We were about to strike out on a world tour, about 17 countries around the world and in these different cities, these major cities in the world with university students. And I thought, what an amazing song for this time. God is for great, every city to say that, for greater things have yet to come and greater things are still to be done. And in every city to stand there and go, I know greater, great things have, been, have gone on in this city. We stood in Paris and say great things have, have, have gone on in Paris, but we believe greater things are, are still coming. And to see students rise up, and I mean the very first time, you don't even have to introduce the song basically, you just, when the lyrics get on the, string, on the screen, Man, students just rise up, start applauding, and just, they just, I mean, they just really, really know that they get it. And there's, so there's a power. Once you hear the song, there is, every time I've played this song for someone, they're like, man, there's something about that song. Well, let me, here's probably why there's something about that song. These guys, Blue Tree, this, the way it was written, they were in Pattaya, Thailand, which in Thailand, it's one of the darkest cities on earth. And this owner of a bar, it was a brothel, bar, you know what I'm talking about, I don't need to say much more, and he asked um, the guys if they would come play in his bar, in his brothel, and these guys being a worship band, they're like, yeah, we're a band, and uh, sure, we'll come play, I mean, I love that, I mean, that is, uh, that's worship leading at its best, when you're going to stand in the darkest place and be the light, you know, they didn't think, oh, what does, what does somebody else want to think, now they're like, this is an opportunity 
and they get up there and in the middle on this stage and I've seen video of it they sent me video of it and I'm talking there's the poles from the dancers everything you can imagine in this place and here's this worship band Blue Tree up on stage and they start singing worship for two hours just singing about the Lord singing about Jesus over the people and it was and he said in the Aaron the lead singer in the middle of in the middle of the set he said that song just came God just gave him the song it's just kind of a prophetic song that came out of them you're the God of the city you're the king of these people you're the Lord of this nation you are and can you imagine the just coming out of them never had heard the song before God's just breathing it out of them for greater things have yet to come and greater things are still to be done in the city and singing it in that brothel on that bar that night what a powerful thing and to be and now to see how that song is, is not just for it wasn't just for that moment but that song is a light in all these places in all these cities to say over every city greater things even in the cities of America and the cities of the world greater things have yet to come greater things are still to be done and it's been incredible to see the people's response to the song God of the City I'm Greg Hengler and this is Our American Stories and great job as always Greg and as Time Magazine said Chris Tomlin may be one of the most sung artists anywhere, and my goodness, God of this city may be the most sung song everywhere, churches across the world. And we do every kind of music and story of the song, from the Rolling Stones and Another Brick in the Wall by Pink Floyd to Chris Tomlin and some of the great Christian contemporary music in this country and around the world. And let's go out here on Our American Stories with God of this city. You're the God of this city You're the King of these people You're the Lord of this nation You are You're the light in this darkness You're the hope to the hopeless You're the peace to the restless You are There is no one like our Is no one like our God? For greater things have yet to come, and greater things are still to be done in this city. Greater things have yet to come, and greater things are still to be done in this city. And we continue with our American stories. And up next, the story of Richard Montanez. Originally from Mexico, Richard's family moved to California where he grew up doing manual labor. His whole life had been spent below the poverty line. But one day, well, everything changed when he got a job as a janitor. And of all places, Frito-Lay. Faith brings us the rest of the story. Richard Montanez wrote a book titled A Boy, a Burrito, and a Cookie. From janitor to executive, Montanez was working as a janitor for Frito-Lay in the 80s. But now, he is worth millions. In his book, he talks about how fear is what holds most people back. 
His success did not come from his great education or from who he knew. In fact, he doesn't have a formal education at all. This is the story of how a man went from a janitor to a millionaire. What was life like growing up for Richard Montanez? I was a, a young boy during the civil rights movement of the 60s. Now, what I like to tell people is that I wasn't old enough to have an impact on the movement, but I was old enough that the movement had an impact on me. And here's how the story goes. We're in a one-room one apartment, and my mom's getting me ready for school because I was being bused from my school to an all-English-speaking school across town. And I remember I'm crying because I don't want to go to school. My mom says, why not? And I said, because everybody speaks English. You know, it's not fair. People forget is that, you know, during my days, there were no bilingual classes. If, if, if you wanted your license, you needed to know English. It was, it, was, it was pretty difficult. It was different. It was really different. And um, so my uncle takes me to the corner, and uh, here comes the yellow bus. And then there goes the yellow bus. So I'm kind of happy and telling my uncle, I guess they're not going to stop for us. There was about 10 of us waiting. Then all of a sudden we hear this big pop and bang and we see this green bus coming up the hill smoking and uh, that's the bus that uh, they sent for us and I remember I told my uncle it's just like it happened yesterday that's why I say sometimes you got to go back you know so you, you can catch some of those wisdom and some of the things that happened to you so uh, I'm telling my uncle why can't I ride the yellow bus like the other kids and he has no explanation I don't know this is the bus that they sent for you it wasn't until I was an adult that I finally realized why they sent that green bus. And it was society at the time saying that this group of children, this group of 10, they're not good enough to ride the yellow bus. Let's put them on a green bus, parade them across town so that the whole town can see that because of who they are, they're not good enough to ride. And, as, and as, a, as a young boy, that, uh, I took that on, because you have to understand, I didn't know what diversity was, I didn't know what discrimination was, I didn't know what race was. But one thing that I did know, and I knew my color. So for me, it was like, oh, dark skin is kind of like a second-class citizen. And I, that's all I knew. So, oh, okay, so I began to take that on. I'm not good enough for the yellow bus. So we get to school. I don't understand the word the teacher's saying, uh, but I always said this, that there's one sound that's international, that every child knows that sound. That is the recess or the lunch bell. It was uh, lunchtime, so it was all a relief. And, you know, my group, we got our lunches, and, you know, we sat outside, and uh, I pulled my lunch out. And I was getting ready to take a bite, and I put it back. I put it back because everybody in that whole uh, playground was staring at me. And the reason they were staring at me, because it was a burrito. And what people need to understand that this was 1963, the world hadn't seen a burrito yet. You know, contrary to popular belief, Taco Bell didn't introduce the burrito to the world, me and my mom did. But the fact is, I was embarrassed. So I went home and I told my mom in Spanish, said, you know, make me a bologna sandwich and a cupcake like the other kids, because I don't want to be different. And I told my mom, why do I have to ride the green bus? Why do I have to be this color? Why do I have to speak this language? Why do I have to eat this food? I want to fit in like everyone else. But my mom, I've always said she's a marketing genius. She said, no, this is who you are. And that was Wednesday when I was bused to that school. So Wednesday was my burrito nightmare. Thursday, she made me two burritos. So I went to school, shared a burrito with a friend on Thursday. 
Friday I was selling burritos for 25 cents a piece. That's when I realized that even at a young age that, you know what, maybe, just maybe there is something special about different, being different. And I finally realized that none of us were created to fit in. We were all created to stand out. And I think that's what we need to teach our young people is quit trying to fit in because it's never going to happen because you weren't created to fit in. You were created to stand out. So for me, that became a revelation that led to a revolution of my life. I knew that, okay, I'm different, but it's okay. And uh, I really started to fall in love with my culture and who I was. His mom had an impact on how he saw himself. She refused to let him be ashamed of his culture, whether that be the color of his skin or his food. But there are other people in his family that impacted him as well, especially when it came to work ethic, even when it meant the type of janitor he would be at Frito-Lay. So, you know, my mentors were my dad and uh, my grandfather. Now, they didn't mentor me in, you know, academics or how to write a check. They had no bank accounts. What they mentored me in how to work hard, how to be the first one, uh, never to be on time, to be early. You know, I'd never been late. You know, I have this thing, I'd, ra I'd rather be, you know, an hour early than five minutes late. Well, I, I gained that from them, but I didn't realize also another thing that that would separate me. Because when I, when I was first hired as a janitor, um, I remember I went and told my grandfather and my dad at the same time, and both of them said, when you mop that floor, you make sure that it shines, that people will know that a Montanez mopped it. Then my dad said, you listen to your grandfather. When, that, when you mop that floor, let people know that a Montanez. So I took that on. I really believed that, you know, uh, in my heart, I was going to be the best janitor that Frito-Lay ever had. I, I took out the trash, I mopped the floors, but I saw that I had an influence as a janitor. People were smiling because they'd walk into the break room and it smelled fresh. They'd walk, something like, well, I can make people smile just by working hard. And, and I remember, because uh, there's always the doubters, you know, and I like to tell young people, you know, stay away from the haters, you know. And people said, well, what do you do? I said, I'm the janitor. Said, oh, you're, the, you're just a janitor? And I said, you know what? There's no such thing as just a janitor. There's no such thing as just a waiter. There's no such thing as, a, there's no such thing as just. When you believe in your heart that you're going to be the best. And I believed in my heart. And people were taking that. And I, that floor shine, you know. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I've said this before. You know, there, there's so many statements out there that are incorrect. And one of them is I'd like to correct, and the statement is that uh, you get promoted by who you know. And that's not true. You get pr promoted by who knows you, who knows of you, who knows your work ethic, who knows that they can trust you. you. You could say you know the CEO of the company, but if he doesn't know you, you'll never get that opportunity. See, I didn't realize that. I was just being me. I just want, I was just happy. I just wanted, you know, everything that I could get out of life in my area. So when the time did come when they were having problems, you know, I, I started to learn uh, my whole industry, uh, whether it was my job or not. You know, I, I would uh, hang out with the, the guy that ran the machines. I would hang out with the guy that, that cooked the product and I'd say, teach me this. And I was just having fun. And you've been listening to Richard Martinez and his story and what a story it is and what a lucky man he was and is to have a dad and a granddad who taught him to work hard and that no job was beneath any man. The dignity of work 
Well, it speaks for itself. Make sure people know Amantanez mopped that floor and make that floor shine. And the pride of work, my goodness, reminds me of the great street sweeper speech by Martin Luther King. By the way, we did an entire segment on it. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Type Martin Luther King and street sweeper speech. When we come back, more of this remarkable voice, Richard Montanez, his story, his family story, and overcoming obstacles here on Our American Story. Return to our American stories, and we've been listening to the story of Richard Montanez, who went from janitor to millionaire. And let's return to faith and the rest of this story. Montanez was both curious and a hard worker. Why was it that he was never afraid? Even as a child, he was taking chances. A lot of it was being naive, a lot of it was not knowing the play rules. You know, if you don't know the you just play the way you think you can. But, uh, you know, every Tuesday they had uh, after-school reading programs. And uh, one was here for the Latino kids and one for the non-Latino. So you, you, I would get in every Tuesday in the line that I was told to get in. And uh, one day I broke ranks. And I got in the white line. And you should have seen my own line, intentionally or unintentionally. They were saying, Ricardo, Tas loco. Richard, you're crazy. This is our line. And when I got in this line, I was really... Uh, I had a lot of fear because all the white kids turned around and was like, hey, the, you know, they were saying what they were taught. Their line's over there. Nothing, nothing me just like, hey, you know, you're in the wrong line. Kind of, you know how kids do it. And then I thought, well, you know what? I wonder if I can pass for being white. There was two beautiful ladies up there in the trailers. I remember blonde, blue eyes. And I kept thinking, are they going to notice that I'm not white? And really, I had, I had a fear that was unbelievable. But I had something inside of me that was greater than that fear. And when my friends were saying, what are you doing? I, I just looked at them and I whispered in a loud way, said, they have cookies inside. I'm going to get us some cookies. And the truth is, why did I get in that line? Why did I? Because sometimes you got to break ranks. You got to get out of that line you were told to get in. Because I was hungry. And I knew they had, that's all. I just wanted a cookie. I was hungry. And as much fear as I had, my hunger was greater than my fear. And that's why I tell people today, if you're hungry for that promotion, if you're hungry for that degree, if you're hungry to run for an office, fear will leave. And when I got up there, guess what those two ladies did? They filled my pockets with cookies. Now, there's two morals of that story. One is hunger is the antidote to fear. If you're hungry, you'll never fear again. The other part of that story is that Everyone needs to understand, and I mean everyone, needs to understand that there's a cookie that's been baked just for you. Your job is to get out of that line that you were told to get into and get into the cookie line. For many of us, it means to get out of the uneducated line into the educated, the poverty line into the prosperity line. And uh, that's why I tell you, that's why uh, my success has been beyond my wildest dreams. I really didn't know any better. All I had was I'm hungry. 
So how did he become an executive? By the mid-1980s, Frito-Lay was struggling. As a way to boost morale, then-CEO Roger Enrico recorded a video message and disseminated it to the company's 300,000 employees. Um, he, he told everyone there across the country, actually across the world, 300, I think 300,000-plus employees at the time, um, we want all of you to act like owners. And you got to understand, that was such a bold statement because... That was during when corporate America was a command and control. Corporate America had not yet heard the word empowerment, let alone individuals. So he was basically saying, I empower you to act like an owner. Here's another thought for me was, wow, is he telling the truth? Is he, is, he's inviting the janitor to act like an owner. And so many people just, it just went, I said, don't you, didn't you hear what he just said? He said, we could all act like owners. So I, I went into action. I started, you know, researching my company. And, and then I asked the salesman if I could go with him on a weekend. I said, I'll load your truck up. So I went to the stores with him and I loaded the Frito-Lay products and just had a great learning the business, whatever I could. And I always say, you know, all you need is, as I said it earlier, all you need is one revelation. One revelation will lead to a revolution in your life. And what is a revelation? It's simply this. It's something that was there all along. It's just been unveiled. I was looking, and this was many, many years ago, and I saw it. I saw And here's what I saw. I saw no products that were catering to Latinos or to the person who loves spices. It's all pretty much, you know, salt and maybe barbecue flavored. Um, no one was selling, you know, spicy flavored or anything hot. So I'm like, that was it. But I remember I went home and I sat in our, on our porch and we have the old-fashioned um, um, of steps, you know, concrete. So I'm sitting there and in my neighborhood, in a lot of Latino neighborhoods like mine that I grew up in, we have something that is called the uh, elote man. It's a vendor. It's a corn, called the corn man. And he sells uh, uh, corn on a stick and he puts mayonnaise, butter, cheese, however you want it, lime, chili. And um, remember I whistled and I said, let me have two, you know one for my son here and I said yeah with everything of course so I'm eating and I'm thinking what could I do what could I create and then I looked at that and it looked just like a Cheeto and it's just like like that the, what if I put chili on a Cheeto so I went to work you know and I actually made up my own seasoning you know that and put it on an unseasoned Cheeto my wife took some to work I took some to work and everybody fell in love with it and you know next thing you know I, I, I called the CEO Richard Montanez, the janitor, called the CEO of Frito-Lay. So I knew that I was different because of my burrito day. I also had courage because I was hungry for my cookie day. So being innovative and full of courage, plus I was naive, I didn't know you weren't supposed to call the CEO. Well, you know, let's find out if he's telling the truth. So I call up and his... Uh, executive assistant was just that she was an executive assistant because she saw it right away and she started saying what division do you do you run because he's a ceo only another president or vice president would call him i said no i work in california like the general manager of california no i work at the rancho cucamonga plant she's like you're the plant director I said no she goes what are you i'm the janitor so hang on ceo gets on you know 10 minutes later he says uh i'll be there in two weeks and um, hung up the phone. And like I've always said, you know, um, there's always somebody in the room that'll 
steal your, try to steal your, well, here comes the plan. See, I really didn't know what I'd done. Montanez had crossed a social boundary that his plant manager saw as unacceptable. Here he comes, and he's so upset, and I don't understand what he's upset. He's just said, do you realize what you've done? The CEO, he's coming, and he's bringing everybody with him to hear you. He goes, you do the presentation. I've never done a presentation. I wouldn't even know where to start. Uh, but I remember, you know, um, I'm married to a brilliant woman. You know, I've, I've always said that, you know, every, when you're in trouble, you know, go to the wife, go to the mom, go to the grandma. The woman has the answer. At the time when he was told he had to give the presentation, he was 26 and barely knew how to read or write. In fact, his wife filled out the application for Frito-Lay. And then again, his wife helped him put together his marketing plan. After bumbling through the presentation, the CEO stood up and said, put them up away, you are coming with us. Six months later, Flamin' Hot Cheetos were being tested in small Latino markets in East Los Angeles. If things didn't work out, Montanez would be back mopping the floor. After some test runs in 1992, Flamin' Hot Cheetos were nationally released. Today, Flamin' Hot Cheetos are one of Frito-Lay's hottest-selling commodities, a multi-billion dollar snack. Over a 35-year career, Richard Montanez, the former janitor, rose through the ranks, and he is now the vice president of multicultural sales for PepsiCo America, the holding company of Frito-Lay. But more than that, Montanez has chosen to give back to the community with scholarships, food drives, and clothing drives. He never wants to forget where he came from. He still lives in Rancho Cucamonga with his family, where they serve the community together. Well, you know, when, when, when we have an event, again, what makes me proud is that it's, it's my three sons, uh, five grandkids, my wife, two daughter-in-laws, and a handful of friends. And 5,000 people show up at my events. We typically, we feed everybody lunch. We have a big stage, we have a sound system, we have a warehouse full of toys. We, I mean, um, we give every family a box of groceries. And what I'm proud about is that, because again, I know what it is to be hungry. The box of groceries is enough groceries to feed a family of four for a week. So when you open my groceries, there's not going to be a, a can that has no label on it. I said, I've said this, if it's not good enough for my kids, then I'm not going to give it to those kids. It's got to be just as, if sometimes even better. So. When we're on stage and my grandkids, uh, that's our legacy, is I know when I look in the mirror that my success is for a reason. And that reason, it, with success comes a responsibility. And that responsibility is to your fellow man. And how, you know, I, I tell people, other people who've been financially successful, how big does your house have to be before you give back? But again, I think other executives, other people who have been very, very fortunate need to understand. And, and I think a lot of them are coming around. They realize when they look at their bank account, there's a reason there's, there's that much in there. Is, you know, part of it is to give it away. I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And what a story. And we've been listening to Richard Montanez. One revelation, he said, can lead to a revolution. And what a revolution. Fear, he kept on saying, holds most people back. And it's so true. Richard Montanez's story, 
here on Our American Stories. And if you know a Richard Montanez story near you, and they're all over this country, I love that he said that most success doesn't come from family connections, because it's so true in this country. It's a bunch of rubbish. And the fact of the matter is, anyone can make it in this country, and Richard's life story is testament to that. Again, Richard Montanez's story, and we're looking for stories like it. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Billy Joe grew restless on the farm A boy filled with wanderlust Who really meant no harm He changed his clothes and shined his boots And combed his dark hair down And his mother cried as he walked out Don't take your guns to town, son Leave your guns at home, Bill Don't take your guns to town This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to business, and your stories, too. There's an Old West adage that goes something like this. God created man, and Abe Lincoln freed them, but Sam Colt made them equal. Samuel Colt became America's first industrial tycoon, and his faithful wife, Elizabeth, proved herself to be no less extraordinary, making Sam Colt's legend bigger than ever and his empire her own. Phil Anschutz writes in Out Where the West Begins, quote, Samuel Colt's life was the American story written in capital letters. On this day in 1814, Samuel Colt was born, and all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life, And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And now on to the story of Samuel Colt. Samuel Colt is born July 19th, 1814 in Hartford, Connecticut. His first five years of life are spent in privilege because of his father's business success. But from the age of 6 to 14, Samuel Colt loses his mother and sister to tuberculosis and then loses a brother and another sister to suicide. At 11, he's indentured to a farmer. Colt begins reading from the Compendium of Knowledge, a scientific encyclopedia containing biographies of famous inventors. He gains knowledge of practical chemistry and becomes obsessed over fireworks and underwater explosives. Then, after one of his fireworks experiments sets his school ablaze, he's expelled. Here's William Hosley, author of Colt, The Making of an American Legend. Sam Colt came from a kind of difficult background. His mother died when he was seven. He didn't take to his formal studies, but he liked taking things apart and putting them back together again. He also liked explosives. He was kind of a prankster, and it got him in a lot of trouble. After his expulsion, 
Colt's father enlists his troublesome 16-year-old boy as a seaman on a ship. You watch your back, but you be respectful. You understand me? That will be sailing halfway around the world to Calcutta, India. Well, here he is. Nice strong worker, just like I told you. His father hopes that the journey will teach his son responsibility and that he will learn a trade as a seaman. But instead, the trip fills Samuel Colt with another idea. Colt is fascinated by guns and believes there's a way to make them better. It's the early 19th century. Battles are fought with sabers and single-shot muskets. Here's Ashley Lubinsky, curator at the Cody Firearms Museum in Cody, Wyoming explaining the limited and cumbersome nature of guns at the time. You had to load it from the top of the gun, and you took a whole cartridge, which was powder, the projectile, and paper, and you would end up putting it down the barrel with a rod. So loading single shotguns weren't horribly efficient. It would take you about a minute or so to load three shots if you were really good. Colt has a revolutionary idea inspired by the giant steering wheel on his ship. He sees that the mechanisms that are used to uh, steer and control these ships had ratchets. And when they rotated the wheel, that it would cock and that these ratchets would hold it in place. Like the ship's wheel with axles, spokes, a barrel and handles, Colt notices that regardless of which way the ship's wheel spins, each spoke always came in direct line with a clutch that could be set to hold it. Colt envisions a firearm with a cylinder that can turn after each shot and lock, and then be fired multiple times. While on board the ship, Colt carves a wooden prototype of a revolving cylinder mechanism out of scrap wood. This is the beginning of the revolver. When Colt returns to America, he's a young man determined to turn his vision into a reality. Colt is a complex man who learns self-promotion. At an early age, the young entrepreneur developed a hustler's streak. From 1832 to 1836, Colt travels throughout America as Dr. Colt, spelled C-O-U-L-T, as the playbills read giving demonstrations of the newly discovered nitrous oxide, or laughing gas. In Out Where the West Begins, Phil Anschutz adds some color. Quote, Clad in a fashionable coat and top hat, and surrounded by smoking beakers, wax demons, mummies, and exploding fireworks, Colt persuaded spectators to sniff a bag coated with nitrous oxide. Sam guaranteed his audience a good half-hour's laugh at the resulting spectacle. Colt's mix of salesmanship with showmanship is on par with the likes of P.T. Barnum. While touring the country, Colt goes looking for investors interested in his revolver. Go on. Take a shot. How about another? And your revolver works the same way. It always keeps you loaded. This is going to revolutionize the world. 
He is the consummate salesman. When Sam Cole would come to you and ask for money, he's so over the top and he's such a unique personality, it's gonna completely win over whoever he's asking. With the help of wealthy New Jersey relatives and friends, Colt raises $230,000, the equivalent of over $6 million today, and begins manufacturing his revolver. So, what do you think? Am I onto something? And when we come back, more of the life of Samuel Colt, who was born on this day in history in 1814. Our American Stories, and we continue with the remarkable story of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. So, what do you think? Am I onto something? There were bugs at first. You don't want any chance that if you pull the trigger on a revolver, more than one bullet's gonna go off at the same time, or even blow up the cylinder. Colt improves his design, and in 1836 is awarded a patent to a 28 caliber, five-shot repeating firearm with a revolving cylinder. It's called the Colt Patterson, and it's like nothing the firearms industry has ever seen. Colt is 23 years old. But Colt's new revolver is proving a tough sell. Lawmen and military are not willing to take a chance on such a new and untested design. In 1842, after six years and a production run of 5,000 pistols and rifles, Colt declares bankruptcy and liquidates his assets. But 2,000 miles southwest in the new state of Texas, the Colt revolver is about to be put to the test. Here's Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Sam Colt's first large sale of his revolver went not to the U.S. Army, which rejected the gun outright, but to the Texas Navy. But plagued by lack of funding and political battles, the Texas Navy nearly ceased to exist by 1844, and its Colt's revolvers then went to the Texas Rangers. The Rangers' first use of the revolvers came in the Battle of Walker's Creek in June 1844. Jack Hayes and 15 of his Rangers were out scouting for Comanche Raiders when the Comanche discovered them. The numbers were to the Comanche liking. Chief Yellow Wolf led more than 70 Comanche warriors. What Yellow Wolf and the other Comanche didn't count on was the Colt revolver. And every ranger was armed with two Colts. They were used to hearing the one shot go off. 
and then they all scramble to load, and then the next shot goes off. But imagine then hearing bang, bang, bang. Would have been incredibly powerful and something to be incredibly intimidated by. After several failed attempts at charging and overwhelming the outnumbered rangers, the Comanche broke and fled, dropping shields, lances, and bows. A Comanche chief said he would never fight the rangers again because they had a shot for every finger on their hands. On the ridge! Rifles! Then in 1846, the Mexican-American War breaks out after the constant border battles between Captain Samuel Walker and his Texas Rangers in the country of Mexico. For Walker and his men, the time it takes to reload a gun is often the difference between life and death. For every shot the Mexicans fire with their standard rifles, Walker's men can fire five. It's the beginning of a new era in warfare. Sam Walker began experimenting with how to use this. It's like, what do they got? What is this secret weapon? This is something we've never seen before. You don't have to have a single shot. You don't have to load the gun. Every time you fire, you've got something that you can load several rounds in. On November 30th, 1846, Captain Samuel Walker writes Samuel Colt a letter that will change the course of history. That letter reports how the Colt pistol changed the way he and his rangers fight. With a $25,000 U.S. government contract for a thousand pistols that Walker arranged, and with the design modifications that Walker suggested, a larger gun with six shots rather than five, Sam Colt re-entered the gun manufacturing business in 1847. The revolver went through the process of user influence, in influencing both design and also the practical use of the thing. They tinkered with this invention. Colt develops a 44 caliber, four pound, nine ounce revolver named the Walker after the man who made it happen. Increase the black powder by 60 grains. The barrel to nine inches. The Colt Walker is a much heavier gun, heavier caliber than Colt's original invention. But these Texas Rangers could handle that type of firearm. Many consider the Walker the mightiest handgun of its day, with firepower that won't be matched for 90 years until the release of the 357 Magnum. Colt's business soars, and the name Colt becomes synonymous with revolvers. Sam Colt created a brand around himself. And so what he was trying to establish there was that he was the guy, he was the brand. When you saw him, you thought success. But Colt's most revolutionary idea isn't in his new design, it's in how he puts it together. More than half a century before Henry Ford used mass production assembly lines in his automobile factories, Colt employed them to produce his revolvers in his enormous Hartford armory beginning in the 1850s. Using interchangeable parts, 
Colt's armory could turn out 150 weapons per day by 1856. The mass production allowed Colt to make his weapons more affordable to gun buyers settling in the West. Colt's mass production achievement is only matched by the revolver's quality. Samuel Colt is an absolute perfectionist. Now, one of these guns is not up to Colt's standard. You choose. Wrong. It's this one. See the blemish? I don't allow any imperfections to leave my factory. Americans are also taken with the way in which this pistol of industrialization was itself like a small factory. It was a bullet-firing machine as opposed to a single-shot instrument. Once Colt perfected the system for mass-producing complex metal instruments like firearms, that system was readily adapted to make typewriters, sewing machines, and eventually bicycles, motorcycles, automobiles, cameras, you name it. In 1849, as the California Gold Rush begins, Colt develops the legendary 1840 pocket revolver, the single most successful pistol produced in his lifetime, with 325,000 sold by the time of his death. Most historians agree that the most serious mistake Colt makes is firing employee Roland White after he presented him with a patent on a new innovation. Powder and ball in the front, primer in the back. Reloading would be much faster. Up until this time, the shooter poured powder into each of the six-cylinder mouths, then push a bullet over the powder, and then load a percussion cap on the rear of the cylinder, making the reloading process cumbersome, to say the least. Roland White came up with this idea for a board-through cylinder that would allow you to load the firearm from the rear. It's not something Colt had. The fire from one shot will set off every chamber. It's dangerous. And on this day in history, in 1814, Samuel Colt was born. And as always, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to get access to all of their free and terrific online courses. This is Lee Habib, Samuel Colt's story, the birth of the revolver and its story, here on Our American Story.
And we return to the life of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. And now the last installment of this story. With almost a complete monopoly on the revolver, Colt isn't ready to take a chance on something new. Here's Mitt Romney. My dad used to say, there's nothing as vulnerable as entrenched success. Sundowns of an enterprise feels it has no real competition. It becomes complacent, and ultimately it can get wiped out by a small upstart that comes out with a better product. Fired by Colt, Roland White takes his groundbreaking idea to two men who intend to be Colt's biggest rivals, Horace Smith and Daniel Wesson. They jump at White's patent and gladly pay him a royalty. With this move, one of the most iconic names in gunmaking is born. Smith & Wesson. Samuel Cole built his business on the back of the Mexican-American War. Now it was just a drop in the bucket compared to the impact of the gold rush and Western migration. Then, in the summer of 1856, Colt marries 29-year-old Elizabeth Hart, the daughter of a devoutly Christian and affluent Newport family. Take a seat. But as the 1850s draw to a close, the southern states begin arming themselves. How can I be of service? I'm here representing some gentlemen that are dedicated to a cause. Colt has been supplying arms to the U.S. military for years. But the military is about to be split in two. It's time for Samuel Colt to decide where his loyalties lie. When you're on the outbreak of war, there's a really difficult problem that arises from firearms manufacturers. And that is the balance between loyalty and being a good businessman. In this case, this is a war breaking out in the United States between the North and the South. This isn't America and the other guy. This is their home. In 1860, just one year before the Civil War begins, Colt sells the modern equivalent of more than $3 million worth of guns to the South. A risky move for a Northern businessman. Colt gets labeled a Southern sympathizer, and worse, a traitor. Sam Colt got into a lot of trouble on the eve of the Civil War because he also was believed to be arming the South. But in fact, Colt supplied arms to both sides before the war. After the war began, that stopped. At the outbreak of the Civil War, Colt doubles the size of his armory and his factory is operating around the clock. But for Sam Colt, the success he craved and achieved would ironically contribute to his death. On January 10th, 1862, Samuel Colt dies of gout complications at the age of 47. By this time, Samuel Colt has made and sold one million guns. His 35-year-old widow Elizabeth is left in control of the company and a personal fortune of 15 million dollars, the equivalent of over 300 million today. Elizabeth keeps the business running, even as the war wages on. 
After losing four children and a husband within five years, Elizabeth has begun to emerge from a year of mourning. Then, on February 5, 1864, Colt's armory bursts into flames and burns to the ground. Elizabeth stands at her window and watches her husband's vision go up in flames. Many believe Confederate sympathizers started the blaze. However, no one ever discovers the real cause. Elizabeth resolves to rebuild the armory while continuing wartime operations in an unburned wing of the building. Elizabeth Colt would also continue to innovate, eventually producing what would become the most famous Colt gun of them all, the Colt 45, also known as the Peacemaker, and what we know now as the gun that won the West. It is still in production to this very day. Here again is Dr. Roger McGrath. While much has been made of the 1873 Colt Peacemaker, and rightfully so, many of the famous gunmen of the Old West quickly replaced their single-action peacemakers with Colt's new double-action revolvers in 1877. Colt offered the new revolver in a 38 caliber, which was called the Lightning, and in a 41 caliber, which was christened the Thunderer. Among the many gunslingers who quickly adopted Colt's new revolver were Billy the Kid and John Wesley Harden. When the Civil War finally ends, America is transformed in countless ways, not least of which is gun ownership. Most of the soldiers come home with a prized possession. The Civil War really marks a turning point for firearms in American history with a revolver and with mass production really taking off. People were able to start buying revolvers. It's really the birth of a huge movement in America with firearms. People are still carrying the revolver because it's a reliable gun today. Colt transformed his products into icons, and his Colt revolvers became fixed in the American imagination as the very symbol of Western independence. The story of the Colt company after Colt family ownership continues to be one of innovation in weaponry. The Gatling gun, Browning rifles and machine guns, and the M16. During the 19th century, Samuel Colt did for pistols what fellow Connecticut native Eli Terry did for clocks. He made guns affordable for the average American. Couple that with the spread of armaments after the Civil War and what you have is an American inheritance passed on from the 19th to the 20th century. Anchored to the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, Americans in the 21st century have also inherited the notion that gun ownership is a normal, solidified, and self-evident aspect of American life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and what a story the cult story is. And by the way, we've gotten 
Any number of business stories from the great book by Phil Anschutz, Out Where the West Begins. There's a part two, and we're going to be digging into some of those stories, too. And that's more of the cultural uh, effect of innovators there. Uh, But Out Where the West Begins, the first one, was about business leaders and how they impacted the growth of this country. And it's ignored in textbooks. It's ignored in schools. Uh, been a business innovators and how they've changed America. And we've done the, the Coors story, the Cyrus McCormick, J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie. Other stories, by the way, that we've done right here on Our American Stories. Henry Ford's, Harley Davidson's, Steinway, the story of the piano makers in New York. Sam Walton, who changed retail forever. And Fred Smith, who had an idea when he was at Yale and in college that overnight delivery could happen. And he was the founder of FedEx and told us here on this show that everything he learned, he learned when he was in the Marines. These business stories are stem winders. No one knows what's going to happen. And as we learn from the cult story, changed America as we know it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, Samuel Colt Story, the birth of the revolver, its story. And on this day in history, in 1814, Samuel Colt was born. And as always, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to get access to all of their free and terrific online courses. Samuel Colt's story, here on Our American Story. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. American Stories, and today we bring you the story of Tom Ryan. And Tom is a 95-year-old listener of our show on KABC in Los Angeles. Tom had an unusual upbringing. He grew up on Long Island, New York, living behind a funeral parlor run by his family. And he wrote a book about it entitled Love in the Ashes. Today we bring you the second of his stories for us. Something tells me there are going to be a lot more. This one is called A Grave Escape. While not a love story like the last, it's just as wild. Here's Tom. I was there on Saturday morning when the sheriff arrived to talk to Grandma. It was the day after the big snowstorm. My folks were away and I had stayed with Grandma overnight. At age 10, I was too young to stay home alone, but staying at Grandma's was not too cool either because, you see, she ran a funeral home. Sometimes there were dead bodies only a few steps from the living room at the back of the house where we watched TV. It was hard to get too relaxed when I looked over at the dark doorway leading to the bodies. That Friday night, there was a very old lady being waked in one of the chapels, Mrs. Jackson, a friend of Grandma's who had died of cancer. The sheriff sat at the kitchen table with his notebook in front of him. He asked Grandma if anything unusual had happened the last night. 
because they were searching for an escaped convict from a prison two towns away. He is a murderer and very dangerous, the sheriff said. They were setting up roadblocks to try to catch him. Grandma didn't answer directly, but said, we have a funeral going out this morning, old Mrs. Jackson. We had to put her in a closed casket because the cancer was so bad. Will the hearse and the limos be able to get to the cemetery, Grandma asked. Yes, the sheriff replied. The road is open to the cemetery. What about anything happening last night? Grandma gave me a stern look that he couldn't see and told him nothing had happened. It was real quiet, she said. I didn't say a word, but as soon as the sheriff left, I asked her what was going on. It wasn't like Grandma to lie. She just shook her head and started to cry. I thought back about last night and remembered that shortly before dark, Grandma kept looking out the side window on the driveway every few minutes since she was expecting a delivery of new caskets. Suddenly, there were yellow headlights shining on the snow outside the window, and a loud knocking came on the side door where the caskets were brought in. Fred, the driver, shouted, I have to hurry before I get snowed in. He had unloaded two caskets and started on another one. Wait, Grandma said, I only ordered two, not three. I have to leave this one too, Fred said. I'll never get to the funeral home in the next town, and I don't want the weight on my truck. Okay, Grandma said, if it helps you out. After he was gone, Grandma closed up tight. My folks were supposed to call to see how things were, but the phone wasn't working. The TV weatherman said the lines were down all over and roads were closed, so we were all by ourselves. After a while, I started to fall asleep, and Grandma helped me upstairs and put me into a soft feather bed. She left the door open a little so some light came in. I remember that I fell asleep but woke up later when I thought I heard voices downstairs. I had started to get out of bed, but it was so cold I crawled back in. The next morning I asked Grandma about it, but she said I must have dreamed it. Later in the morning, the men who worked for Grandma came in and then loaded the casket into the hearse. When my folks came to pick me up, I saw Grandma holding onto my father's arm and talking to him. I heard her say, I need your help. She took him into the office and closed the door. I thought I heard her crying. It was five years later when Grandma died that my folks told me the real story of what had happened that Friday night. It seemed that the voices I thought I had heard were those of Grandma and the escaped convict. The caskets that were delivered that night were made by prison labor, and the convict, with the nickname of Rabbit, had hidden in one of those empty caskets. When the delivery man had left, Rabbit had opened the inside latch and let himself out of the casket. He didn't know, however, that Grandma had fallen asleep in her big chair in the living room, and she woke up startled and scared to see him standing near the fireplace, 
holding a large knife he had taken from the embalming room. Threatening her to silence by holding the knife under her throat, he asked for car keys and money. But Grandma didn't have a car and didn't drive. When he realized that the storm had blocked the roads and there was no phone service, he asked Grandma when someone was coming with a car. She told him that there was one funeral schedule for the next morning if the roads were open and men coming with a hearse and limousine. When he saw some of my things on the couch and found out that I was upstairs, Grandma pleaded with him to let me sleep. She would help him get in the casket with Mrs. Jackson and be taken away in the hearse the next morning to the cemetery. He could then sneak out of the casket when it was left in the cemetery storeroom for a few minutes until the family arrived. Rabbit didn't like the idea at all, especially getting into the coffin with a dead lady. He decided that he had no other choice, but he made it very clear to Grandma that if she was fooling him and he was caught, he would escape again and kill not only her, but also all of her family. Grandma was terrified by this evil man. It was arranged that early on Saturday morning, Rabbit would get into the casket and then Grandma would close it and latch it shut. He was very hesitant, especially when he saw and smelled old Mrs. Jackson. But finally he climbed in, holding his nose and threatening Grandma with a painful death if things didn't work out. He also ordered Grandma to get him some hot coffee in a thermos so that he could drink it when it got cold in the casket and she did so just before closing the lid. The plan did work. When the man came and took the casket away and loaded it into the hearse, Grandma hadn't said anything about Rabbit being in the casket. After his private meeting with Grandma, my dad had immediately called the sheriff and arranged to stop in and see him. The police still hadn't found Rabbit, despite the roadblocks and searches of the nearby forests. They were mystified as to how he could have disappeared so completely. Sheriff, my dad said, as you know, this man was a murderer who would stop at nothing to escape. He told the sheriff how Rabbit had hidden in the casket at the prison and had ended up in Grandma's funeral home. He also explained how Rabbit had threatened Grandma and her family, so she was forced to help him escape in Mrs. Jackson's casket. What, said the sheriff? Why didn't she call me as soon as he was in the casket? I could have nabbed him right then and there. She was too scared, sheriff, but my dad continued a little smile playing around his lips and pride in his voice. She was also smart enough to have slipped a large amount of sleeping pills into the coffee she gave him to drink in the casket. The sheriff thought for a moment and said, wait, if Rabbit drank that coffee, heck, he might have been buried alive in the casket with Mrs. Jackson. The sheriff almost shouted as he got his phone out. We'll have to dig up the casket immediately. If we find him in the casket, I may have to take Grandma into custody. 
She could be in a lot of trouble. Wait, my dad said. Wait a minute, Sheriff, before you do anything. Wait? No, no, we can't lose any more time. That man may still be alive. If there was enough air in the casket, maybe he is. The sheriff was now calling to his assistants as he rose from his chair. Get the car ready, ready to roll, and call the coroner. No, sheriff, please listen, my father replied quietly. Sit down a minute. You see, there is no casket. No casket? The sheriff looked confused. Of course there is a casket. They had the funeral, and it was buried this morning. No, my father replied quietly. You see, Sheriff, Mrs. Jackson's last wishes were that she be cremated. My goodness, it does not get better than that, folks, and that's why I say something tells me we'll be hearing more from Tom Ryan And by the way, we want your stories. And as you can tell, we don't discriminate. 95, 10 years old, the north, the south, the east, the west, Christian, atheist, we don't care. We love a good story. Tom Ryan's story, his grandma's story, my goodness, poor rabbit's story, here on Our American Stories. Hi, this is Robbie, and I'm one of the new producers of Our American Stories. In my short time here, I've been able to help people tell some amazing stories, and you can find them on ouramericannetwork.org. But now it's your turn. I'd like to help you tell your story to our listeners. Just record it and send it over to yourstory@oanetwork.org. That's yourstory@oanetwork.org. Can't wait to hear it. <laughs> 